Tonight we're going to stop a little prematurely at 18. I, I just was thinking maybe covering 19 along with 18 would be a little lengthy this evening, although it's almost unfortunate there's even a chapter division between the two chapters. But we'll cover uh, 19 uh, next week to see the outcome of what happens tonight, okay? And some of you know that outcome. But anyway, find chapter 18 of 2 Kings, and we're going to look at the subject matter, the rewards of obedience. The rewards of obedience. 2 Kings 18. Okay? 2 Kings 18. So tonight we're focusing back on the southern kingdom again, otherwise known as Judah. Judah. Exactly. But then in chapter 18, you'll notice a few verses in, we will get a summary of the Assyrians defeating the northern kingdom, Israel, and deporting a lot of those to various lands and then moving others in. And so we'll kind of have a quick summary of what we talked about last week in chapter 17. Okay? In the third year of Hoshea, son of Eli, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria. This is the recap from chapter 17 I told you about. Deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Gozan on the uh, Habar River and in towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. 
In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I've done wrong. Withdraw from me and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer, and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king, and uh, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebnah, the secretary, and Joash, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I've come to attack and destroy this place. Uh, have I come to, to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then uh, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebnah and Joah, uh, Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. 
This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Ar Ar Arpad? Where are the gods of uh, Sepharvarim, uh, Hena, and Evah? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Oswald Chambers, many of you may use his little devotional book. Uh, Oswald Chambers said, an average view of the Christian life is that it means deliverance from trouble. However, it's deliverance in trouble, which is a very different thing. And folks, that's what we're going to see tonight. Judah finally has a godly king. And we'll meet him in a moment to have more to say about him. So with this godly king, though, you would hope that finally everybody in Judah can live happily ever after, right? But that's not life. Remember, Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Godliness doesn't mean an absence of trials. When God's people are tested and when we're tried, folks, we need to consecrate our lives to the Lord even more in the midst of our trials. The easiest thing to do would maybe to make, try to make compromises and get out of the trouble. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people do. A lot of Christians will follow the path of least resistance. But by doing so, the road on, on down the way a bit is going to become even more difficult. Tonight we're going to see a man who decided to stand up for the Lord, and he paid the price for doing so. The heat got turned up. He stayed the course. But we're also going to see he made some mistakes. He wasn't a perfect man. There's a big disappointment in his life. In fact, when we get over to chapter 20, I believe it is, we're going to see another big disappointment about his life. But again, when it counted, he took a stand, and God blessed him and was with him. His life is a testimony to us about obedience to God. God blesses obedience. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight, the blessing of an obedient leader. The blessing of an obedient leader in the first seven verses. 
Now, what do you notice the scripture says here about Hezekiah? You notice that it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, right? And who's he compared to in verse 3? David. Now, here's a change. Here's a refreshing change. What have we read about some of the other kings of Judah? He did what was right, but not like David. But Hezekiah is compared to David. Folks, that is a remarkable testimony. It really is. And something else that's different about Hezekiah. Do you see something else in the text that really stands out to you what he did? He removed the high places where they would worship Baal. He tore those down. So many of the other good kings, even, in Judah, we would read, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he did not get rid of the high places. Well, Hezekiah did. And so it's fine. it seems like here's finally a king who's getting things right. He even got rid of the serpent that Moses made. Turn back to Numbers 21 a moment. Numbers 21. Numbers 21, beginning there in verse 4. It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to a girl... Uh, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze uh, snake, they lived. Do you remember who else used this bronze snake as a lesson in the New Testament? John 3. Hmm? John 3 with Nicodemus? John 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And he pointed out there that even as Moses put the snake on the pole, lifted it up, and all who looked to it would be healed, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and all who look to Him will live. So God had told Moses to make this, to make this, but the serpent had become more than a symbol. It had ended up becoming an idol. And so here was a good thing initially that has now become an idol. And folks, isn't that a testimony to us that good things 
can become idols. Nothing is to be allowed to take the place of God. And so what does Hezekiah do? He destroys the serpent on the pole again because it's become an idol. And look at the words that are used to describe Hezekiah. In verse 5, we're told he trusted God. In verse 6, he held fast to God. Uh, the second part of verse 6, he obeyed the word of the Lord. It's like we can finally breathe a sigh of relief. Judah has a king like who they like whom they really need. Finally. And what's the result? The result we're told is that God was with him and gave him success and prospered the people. You know, the Bible talks about how people suffer when they have bad leaders and how they prosper when they have good and godly leaders. That's a message Washington, D.C. needs to hear, right? Why do we think that the world pays better than God? God's rewards are better than anything the world has to offer. We need to remember that. Now, as we turn to these, these verses right here, I want to highlight in even more detail what Hezekiah did because we have to rely on Second Chronicles to fill in some of the gaps here. And so D.D.'s going to get us started with 2 Chronicles 9, verses 3 through 11. And everybody who reads, if you'd read up loud enough so we can, we can all listen in. He in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord. God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and have forsaken him, and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord, and turned their backs. Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, and put out the lamps, and have not burned incense, nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place, unto the God of Israel. Wherefore the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he hath delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as ye see with your eyes. For lo, our fathers have fallen by this sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in mine heart to make covenant with the Lord God of Israel, that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and burn incense. Wow. So he does what? Reconsecrates the, the temple, the priesthood, gets rid of anything that's defiled it, and has it rededicated, right? Thank you, D.D. Uh, who's next? Marlene. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. The king commanded the priests and descendants of Aaron to offer these on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls and 
blood can be splashed against the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and splashed their blood against the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and splashed their blood against the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. Good, thank you. So not only reconsecrating the temple, the Levites, but now offering the sin offerings. Uh, Rick, you next. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. The service of the house of the Lord was restored. Man, how great is that? Wonderful <coughs> testimony. Now over in chapter 30, Drew. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the King, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the time at that time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. So couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he may turn against that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Now folks, remember here from chapter 17, Israel has been destroyed by the Assyrians. But there's, there's a remnant there of the people who were not de deported. So he's even inviting them from Ephraim and Manasseh. He's inviting any of the remnant, remnant from the northern kingdom to join everybody in the southern kingdom and reinstitute the Passover. They've not been observing the Passover. They were commanded to observe the Passover every year, the Feast of uh, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three festivals, they were to recognize and celebrate every year. And they've not been doing that. 
And he gets them doing that again here with the Passover. Okay, uh, Dennis. Hezekiah assigned the priests and Levites to divisions, each of them according to their duties as priests or Levites, to offer burnt offering and fellowship offerings, to minister, to give thanks, and to sing praises at the gates of the Lord's dwelling. The king contributed from his own possessions for the morning and evening burnt offerings and for the burnt offerings on the Sabbaths at the new moons and at the appointed festivals as written in the law of the Lord. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Amen. I tell you what, um, he's, he's getting everything right, isn't he? Uh, now working with the priest and the Levites uh, according to their duties. Now one, let's see, how many more? One more. Allison? This is what Hezekiah did throughout Judah, doing what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. In everything that he undertook in the service of God's temple and in obedience to the law and the commands, he sought his God and worked wholeheartedly and so he prospered. Okay. Thank you to all of those who read these verses are just a sampling of what Hezekiah did. So how do you feel about Hezekiah? Good, right? Yeah. Again, you're thinking, whew, finally they got the leader they need. And it just goes to show that God's people need godly and dedicated leaders. And when they have those kind of leaders and follow them, they're blessed. But there's more to Hezekiah. Uh, next, we'll see also that he was uh, the example of a courageous leader. Go back to 18, the end of verse 7. What's it say that he did? He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Remember, his father Ahaz had trusted in Assyria instead of trusting in the Lord. You remember that? when the kings of Israel and Syria were going to get the king of Judah, Ahaz, to join with them in a threefold alliance against Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians, what did Ahaz do? Hezekiah's dad? He called up Tiglath-Pileser, said, I need you. These two kings are going to attack me and put somebody else on the throne and they're hoping that the three kings and three countries together can stand against you. He calls up the bad guy that everybody's afraid of. Ahaz does. And trust in him. And, and uh, what Hezekiah does is just the opposite. He cuts off any trust in the king of Assyria, who's now Sennacherib. Uh, 
You know, Hezekiah understood enough of the Jews' history to know that God had not given them the promised land so that they would once again become slaves of another nation. And so he does a very courageous act. He severs time. He's, he's not depending on the Assyrians anymore and paying tribute to them. And he's also dealing with the Philistines. You know, it takes courage to serve God, doesn't it? Don't you know that the people of Judah might have been initially a little bit afraid of what he's doing? Cutting off ties with Assyria. Uh-oh, he can make Assyria mad. Now they're coming to attack us for sure, probably. But you know what? I think God's looking for people today who can't be bought or bribed. Yeah, amen. You just think about Daniel 6, those friends of, of Daniel. Uh, they couldn't be bought or bribed. They were willing to die rather than to recant their faith. What could God do today with people in the church like that? Amen. People who have backbone. I mean, what if, what if you made a decision tonight that might cost your family everything, but if you knew that you were to obey God, you'd have to pay that price? Would you make that decision? Compromise or courage, which would it be? Hezekiah at this point picks courage. He breaks it off with Assyria. And then as I mentioned to you in verses 9 to 12, we basically have a summary of what had happened in chapter 17, how the Assyrian king had invaded Israel, destroyed it, carried off the people of the northern kingdom, or Israel. And so the purpose of these verses is no doubt to reinforce for us the amount of courage that Hezekiah is showing at this point. Because we're being reminded that Hezekiah is rebelling from a very, very powerful adversary. And so we're, we're meant to really revel in and appreciate the depths of Hezekiah's courage. But then thirdly, I want you to see about him the disappointment of a cowardly act. Verses 13, 13 to 16. And we're going to see here that even a good king can stumble. Hezekiah stumbles. He will get back up. And he'll stumble again later on in chapter 20. Showing that all men can have moments of weakness. Uh, what's What's disappointing here is that Hezekiah, when the king of Assyria confronts him, he decides to pay up. And he even strips the temple of its treasures to try and satisfy a tyrant. He'd been so courageous against the king of Assyria, but now he's trying to appease him. Um... But you know, I'm glad that God's not done with Hezekiah. Aren't you glad when we stumble like this, he's not done? I think of Simon Peter, who denied the Lord three times, and God still used him. Uh, fourthly, I want you to see the foolishness of a prideful challenge. The foolishness of a prideful challenge. We're going to be talking now about the Assyrians. 
their foolishness. Verses 17 to 37. Hezekiah hoped to buy some time with Sennacherib with the money and treasures paid to him. But I want you to notice that whatever Hezekiah accomplished, it was short-lived. And you know, there's a lesson in that to us, right? You can't cut deals with the devil. Devil's not going to be appeased or satisfied. Sennacherib sends three officials with his army to confront Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah, in turn, sends three officials out to meet with Sennacherib's three officials. And in verse 19, the uh, Rabshakeh speaks. He's the chief cupbearer. That's what his title means. But he seems to be uh, in this delegation speaking maybe because of his linguistic skills. And so he's the one who addresses Hezekiah's delegation. And you'll notice what he begins doing right away is mocking Hezekiah. He points out that it'll not do any good to trust in Egypt. He mocks Egypt. Compares them to a broken reed that the end's sharp. If you try to lean on a broken reed, that sharp pointed end just goes. He said, that's what's going to happen to anybody trusting in Egypt. He also mocks trust in God, but he does so in sort of a backhanded way so that he can strike fear in the hearts of the common everyday people who are listening in. He says, you can trust in your God, but Hezekiah has torn down the high places. Well, no, it was not the high places of God before. It was, it was the high places of Baal. But, uh, you know, those things had become, those high places had become substitutes for God. But, but this delegate here tries to get the people thinking that maybe God too was somehow worshipped through those high places. And so by tearing down the high places, he's trying to get the people thinking that God might be offended because of this. Um, so anyway, he's just trying to play mind games with them. Uh, you notice also he mocks their military ability. He says, hey, I got a wager for you. We'll give you 2,000 horses to fight us if you think you can even find 2,000 capable men to ride them. You know, the least of our commanders will still beat you. And finally, he tries to make them think that it is their God, Judah and Israel's God, as the one who has sent the king of Assyria against them in the first place. And so he's really just trying to get inside of their heads. It's warfare propaganda. And verses 26 and 27 show the mind games that are going on here because it was customary to carry on diplomacy in Aramaic and then privately among the diplomats and leave the crowd out of it. But what Sennacherib's delegate is doing is speaking publicly in the hearing of everybody in a language they can understand. What's he trying to do here? He's trying to create mass hysteria among the people of Judah. Get them afraid. And then he turns in verse 28 
and following to directly address the multitudes. And he's going to make a huge mistake. Verse 28, he paints the Assyrian king out to be a great king while Hezekiah, always just kind of your run-of-the-mill kind of king, he tries to bribe them to come on over to Assyria's side, and if they will, Sennacherib will give everybody their own vine, their own fig tree, their own water, until he takes them away to another land. But, but then he makes a huge mistake. He mocks God. In verses 32 to 35, he basically says, Who do you think this God is that Hezekiah wants you to trust? Is he better than the gods of the other nations? Uh, yeah, because the gods of the other nations were just dead idols. He says, you know, those gods hadn't helped their people or their countries. What do you think your God's going to be able to do? He's going to be just as powerless against Sennacherib and the Assyrians as all the other gods of the other nations were. Big, big, big mistake. Verse 36, we see the high respect everybody has for Hezekiah because Hezekiah uh, had told them apparently to keep quiet, not even respond. That's exactly what they did. You know, Sennacherib and his officials, just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they don't realize who they're dealing with. They don't realize at all who they're dealing with. <coughs> they're mocking God. And we're going to see in coming chapters what God does to the Assyrians and to Sennacherib in particular. It's not going to end well for them. <coughs> well, what's the lessons? Trust in God should affect our choices. Trust in God should affect our choices. What did Hezekiah do that shows this? He removed the high places and he removed the bronze servant on the pole that had become an idol. What are you doing with your choices in your everyday life that show that you're really trusting in God? How do your choices in just everyday matters in your life reflect that you're truly trusting God? Think about that. A second takeaway we see here, we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Hezekiah breaks it off with the Assyrians. He's like, enough of this. I'm tired of being under this guy's rule and uh, paying tribute to him and so forth. Tired of this alliance that we have with Assyria. Enough of it. We're, we're to witness to unbelievers, but we're not to be bound up with them in uh, life's commitments. And then the third thing we see, the enemy will try to strike fear in us 
and intimidate us into thinking that our trust in God will fail us because God himself will fail us. God won't fail us. Any comments you want to add tonight? Anybody? I think the devil's happy if we if we what? We're trusting God. Oh yeah. Yep. We put our trust in other things. That's what the devil would try to have us do. Sounds like today. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Yep. Good to see you tonight, Donna. Not quite as much of Donna as we're accustomed to having with us, right? Has a finger, part of that finger that you still have. Good. Okay. Point number two. Uh huh. I was sleeping. In okay. We're not to be, are you talking about at the end point number two or back earlier? The earlier one. Back earlier. Okay. The example of a courageous leader. <laughs> the foolishness of a prideful challenge. It made me think a lot about how those who are real liberal want to knock down everything about God. Yeah. Mock everything about God. Yeah. And they will, they will suffer for it. Sure. I'd be scared to death. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, many people in the world have no fear of God. None whatsoever. Seem to be very uh, unknowledgeable about the people in these conference. Mm -hmm. They think that uh, all those uh, high places that were torn down and whatnot, uh, they're gods. Right. You know, it's like you're so yep. totally disconnected. Sure. Yep. And again, he's just trying to play mind games with them to create mass fear and hysteria. Masses of people there, though. I'm thinking they're kind of looking at one another. Huh? <laughs> but remember, in their history, they had even become syncretistic. They had started blending together worship of Baal and worship of God and the kind of. Right. Uh, I find it interesting, too, the call when they went out to the people in the northern to come back to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Uh, you know, Sherborne had set the two other sites for the yes. worship and stuff. But yeah. He's calling them back to be a unified people and he worships God at the temple. Yeah. Yeah. The exact opposite of what Jeroboam had done. Yeah, good point. In my hometown, all the churches, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, all of them. Even the First Baptist, which is in a different conference than Southern Baptist, 
that they've all gotten like jelly when it comes to preaching the gospel. Mm -hmm. My brother said that there's no place in town that he can worship. Um, it still stands on the word. He was going to 20 miles away from there just to find a church yeah. that worshiped, really worshiped God. Mm. Wow. It was bad enough when I was young because there's 70% Roman Catholic in that town. Okay. But now the Methodist and the, the Lutheran and the other Baptist church, they all just don't speak the word of God like that. Mm. And I think the devil's done a really yeah. Sad. It is. That's what Don says. When he was there, he says it's terrible that you can't find a church to worship in. Yeah. So few they're preaching the word anymore. And yeah. my my mother's brother that's just year older than me, he and his wife, they are worshiping on watching Dr. Jeremiah and and uh, Charles Stanley and people like that, their church is the point. Yeah. It's awful. I'm glad I'm down here. <laughs> uh, there's a couple, there's a couple in our church that Connie and I are good friends with. They went to a baptismal service recently. They were invited to at another church in our area. One of the one of the biggest, fastest growing churches in our area is not, not a Baptist church. And they were they were shocked. They said from beginning to end in the service, there was no scripture whatsoever. In the sermon or anything, there was no Bible anywhere from beginning to end. And they were, they were just, they were amazed. 